0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We're going to begin
1: in prayer, because that's a good way to begin. If you could please stand.
2: The Lord be with you. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious and loving God, you have called us to assemble together here now to open our minds and our hearts, our souls, and our lives to an exploration of the word which you have given to us in all of its resplendent glory. You have opened new vistas to us as we have eyes to see granted to us by your most holy word. We pray that in this season of expectation and of anticipation, that we may anticipate your revelation of yourself as our Savior and our coming King, Lord, and Judge now O father as we set our minds and our hearts to the book of esther we pray that we may find in it more treasures of your revelation of your goodness and your love and so we pray your blessing now upon this session this evening as we pray together the prayer our lord taught us our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father Paul. As I was coming over here today, I
1: was thinking, you know, How many churches are having programs this evening on the Book of Esther? (laughs) Only at the Institute of Catholic Culture. And I've told you many times, I'll say it again, we will not rest until we have covered every aspect of the Catholic faith. Our speaker this evening is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg, where he is the director of the Respect Life office. Father Schenck was raised Jewish, he was baptized at 16 years old and was ordained in the evangelical and anglican tradition. A former Anglican minister, Father Shank is founder and chairman of the National Pro-Life Center on Capitol Hill in Washington DC. Today he conducts pro-life ministry in three capital cities, Harrisburg, Annapolis and Washington DC, as well as throughout the country. He and his family came to the Catholic Church in 2004. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Schenk.
2: Very good. Thank you, Deacon. I do want you, Deacon, to come to my humble little rural Pennsylvania parish to take a second collection. (laughs) For the Institute, for anything. I have to have you come. Uh, I just have to see the the result, so it 's a joy to be with you again. I really, truly look forward to being here with you, not necessarily the drive in between, but I do look forward to coming and being with you and Now, to present to you the book of Esther, this is just one of my favorite areas of study i 've been working on this for a very long time in fact. What I'm presenting to you tonight is actually a lecture that I prepared to give at Catholic University uh, some years ago when I was asked to address the Association of Hebrew Catholics, of Hebrew-speaking Catholics from around the world. So I prepared this lecture to give, and when I arrived, the convener and my host said, D- 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 don't use your, your prepared remarks. Uh, just tell us your story. That's why, that's, people want to hear just the story. <laughs> I prepared this lecture. <laughs> so I never gave it. Uh, so I give it to you tonight. Uh, so, and, and I've, I've had plenty of time to work the bugs out of it in between so you get you get an extra version of it so the three books of Esther you didn't know there were three books of Esther in the Bible did you I'll tell you about that in a moment but the first thing I want to tell you is a blessed advent as we do prepare in this season of expectation and anticipation a very good festival of lights it's a season of lights Today is the second day of Hanukkah. You know that the only Bible that tells the story of Hanukkah is the Catholic Bible. You know that. The Masorah, the traditional Jewish text, the Hebrew Bible does not tell the story of Hanukkah. It's the story of the Maccabees, and the Maccabees books are not in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Furthermore, the Gospel of John tells us in the 10th chapter that our Lord went to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem with his disciples on the Feast of Dedication. The Hebrew word for dedication is Hanuk, Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. So our Lord celebrated Hanukkah at the temple with his disciples, and that's in John chapter 10. So I like to tell my Jewish family and friends, that, do you want to read the story of Hanukkah? You have to get a Catholic Bible. (laughs) So, a blessed Advent and Hanukkah Sameach. Happy Hanukkah tonight. Festival of lights this season. Now, Deacon said that it was all right for me to come and tell you about Esther, and he gave me one session to do it. We really, we have to go through the whole Megillah in one session. So here it is, the whole Megillah. This is the Megillah. You've heard of the whole Megillah? The whole Megillah is right here. This is the Megillat Esther. And this is where the phrase the whole Megillah comes from. Because on the Feast of Purim, in the s- synagogue, the whole scroll of Esther, Hamagillat, Esther, the scroll of Esther, is read from beginning to end in one single session. And that's the whole Megillah. <laughs> so I'm going to pass around the whole Megillah, and you can look at the Hebrew, Esther, which is one of the three books of Esther. Now, you know of only one because they're all presented in the pages of your Old Testament. But there are three distinct versions of Esther. And we'll begin with the youngest, the newest version of Esther, which is in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. The uh, Magillot, Esther, the book of Esther, is in the Masorah, the traditional Hebrew text of the Bible. It's a unique book. Well, not entirely unique, but close to unique. It is one of only two books in the Bible that do not specifically mention God by name. Esther... And who might suggest the other? Song of songs. Song of songs. So the Hebrew Esther never mentions God by name. Then we have the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Bible. And the Greek version does mention God as kurios, Lord, Lord. In the text, there are prayers. That's the Greek Old Testament. And then there is the Greek Alpha text. This is the gem. This is the jewel. The Greek Alpha text of Esther. Each of these are distinct versions of Esther. And they tell a story. They tell the story of Esther in different ways and we're going to touch on that a little bit tonight but i have only one session so we'll get into an outline of esther and we'll do it as quickly as we can i want to mention three items that i have with me tonight first of all i've brought just what i have left of the new revised standard version of the Bible. This is a really useful, very handy edition uh, that I use for Bible study. It is a wide margin with space for notes in the columns and in the back, additional pages, so that you can write along your notes for Bible study or meditation or reflection. And I have those back there. I don't know how many are left yet. Um, I've told you about the Revised Standard Version. The new Revised Standard Version is just a new setting for it, but the same philosophy of translation. So I've brought some of those along with me. Deacon's always asking me if I have Bibles to bring, and I had some. This is the premier text on the book of Esther in the world. Now, I'm trying to match Deacon's style here. Uh, but I'm telling you the truth. Um, I didn't mean that as it, as it sounded. Oh goodness gracious, how do I get out of that one? How do I get out of that one? Hana Kahana is just the superior scholar in the three books of Esther. This is the finest text published in English. I could not get it in the United States. I had to go to Belgium, to Brussels, and I had to arm wrestle the publisher to send me two cartons for you. And I waited and waited. I kept waiting for the delivery, and I was afraid I wouldn't have them, and it came about six days ago for you. Now, when you open the pages of this book, you'll see Hebrew and you'll see Greek, but please don't be uh, afraid of it. Uh, It's translated for you. But this is the very best exploration of the book of Esther. I could never do it justice. That's why I got the book for you. I looked on Amazon and it's running about $65. I was able to uh, get it for you for $44. And I really urge you to pick it up, because spend a year with the Book of Esther. Uh, it is just a magnificent study. So I brought these uh, for you as well. Okay. And then I have holy cards on my table. If there are any left, I'm happy to bless them. For Edith Stein, St. Teresa Benedicta Acruce, who is my patroness, and uh, made the way for my family and I to come into the church. So I do promote her holy card, and I'm happy if you take one. I have a syllabus this evening, which is the largest that I've ever produced for you, and uh, that's available as well. All right. The common good is the good of all people and of the whole person. It is equally and concurrently the good of the community and of the individual. A community cannot be good unless the individuals within it are good. Conversely, the individuals within the community are profoundly affected and in many respects formed by the community in which they live. There is an intrinsic reciprocal relationship between a society as a whole and the people who live in it. Each affects the other. Just as individual moral actions are judged good when persons will and do good, so the actions of a society are judged morally good when taken together they accomplish the common good. Men and women acting mutually either build up the common good or break it down. Quoting Gaudium et Spes, the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, describes the common good as the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. So, actions that oppress, impoverish, disrespect, degrade, or otherwise deny persons their inherent human dignity and make conditions anti-human are contrary to the common good and severely damage the necessary bonds that serve as the proper foundation of any society. Even so, the individual actions of particular persons can and often do lead to the transformation of a society from bad to good or vice versa. The biblical story of Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai provides a parabolic drama that demonstrates these truths. The characters illustrate the intrinsic relationship between the actions of individuals, be they good or evil, and the moral condition of a society. Artaxerxes, Vashti, Esther, Mordechai, and Haman and even the Persian Empire and the Jewish people as a whole compose a remarkable illustration of how individual moral acts affect a society, a nation, and even an entire culture. The author of the Book of Esther is unknown. It was written after the death of Ahasuerus, now I prefer the Hebrew pronunciation Ahashverosh, but most people see it in print as Ahasuerus, so we'll leave it at that. He is the Xerxes of the Greeks. That took place at about 465 BC. The detailed account given by the writer makes it probable that he was a contemporary, and if that were the case, then the book was written about 444 to 434 BC, and the author was likely a diaspora Jew who was dwelling in Persia. I happened to have a Hebrew teacher who I loved, I adored, and she was a Persian Jew. Her father, father of um, 24 natural children, she grew up in a Moshav in Gaza, she lived in the neighborhood of the Bedouin, and she was just the most electric character you could ever meet, just fabulous. And I loved her dearly, and she, she drew us into this Persian-Jewish culture, which goes all the way back to Queen Esther. The writer of the book came from this Persian-Jewish culture. Now, the book presents itself as a chronicle and memorial of events that lay behind the enduring Jewish festival of Purim, which usually takes place in February, thereabouts. It is extant in three distinctly different versions, one in Hebrew and two in Greek, The Hebrew version, as I told you, is peculiar because God is not mentioned in it. The Greek version has restored the references to God and the prayers, and in either form, the book exhibits providential characteristics of God. Scholars have different explanations for the absence of any explicit reference to God in the Hebrew text, But the result is that the story actually transcends a particular religion. At least in the Hebrew version, it has even the air of a secular consideration of the human struggle for a just society. The Hebrew version gives an account of the deliverance of the Jewish people from the oppression of a dominant culture inimical to their distinctive identity and religion. They are persecuted because they fail to conform politically and culturally. It seems that the more things change, the more they remain the same. The dignity and integrity of the Jewish people as the people of God is the central theme, and it is their struggle for human dignity and its concomitant freedom that lies at the heart of the Hebrew story. The Scroll of Esther was confirmed as a part of the canon of Scripture by the councils of Florence and Trent, and was included among the inspired text by Christians since the Septuagint. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that Holy Scripture is at the heart of Catholic doctrine. And this would be especially true of Catholic social doctrine. And so for this reason... My presentation will attempt to correlate the Book of Esther with the social teachings of the Catholic Church as it is presented to us in the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, which was published at the request of Blessed John Paul II by the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. And so my particular focus will be the operation of the common good, the Catholic concept of the common good, within the structures and relationships in this story, and the actions of individuals which contribute to it or detract from it. Now, as I said, it's curious that even though the compendium of the social doctrine of the Church has brought together a very large group of scripture references, there is no reference to the book of Esther in the compendium even though it provides a vivid illustration of its principles. This is especially the case with the Church's teaching on the common good. Now, for the purpose of correlating the texts, the following outline is going to be followed. Now, I've printed this outline in detail here in this syllabus that I prepared for you tonight. We begin with the prologue. Mordecai's dream and his fidelity to his own people and to his city, the city of Susa. And there we'll see the principles of the unity, dignity, and equality of all people. Oh, I didn't give you the references to the first. The prologue in the Alpha text, (laughs) the Greek version, it's chapter A, verses 1 through 17, in the uh, Hebrew version, the Mesorah, it's found in chapter 11, verse 2 through chapter 12 and verse 6. Secondly, Esther, who is chosen as queen in uh, the uh, standard text, the Masara text, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 23. And here, in this chapter, if you will, is the responsibility for attaining the common good which belongs to the state. Third, Haman, who is the evildoer, the schemer in this story, schemes against the Jewish people. And King Ahasuerus decrees their destruction on the basis of his scheming. The third chapter in the Masorah, the Hebrew version, chapter B In the Septuagint, the Greek version. And here we find that government is required to interpret the common good, not only according to the guidelines of the majority, but also to the effective good of all, including the minority. Number four Esther and Mordecai appeal to God for justice. In the Messara, the Hebrew text, it's chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. In the Greek version, C, 1 through 30. Now you may say, well, wait a minute, I thought in the Hebrew there was no reference to God. There are oblique references to the divine or at least to providence. And uh, here we have the common good may not be deprived of its transcendent dimension. Number five. Divine deliverance is prepared. Esther intercedes for the people with the king. This is found in the Alpha text in chapter D, verses 1 through 16, the Septuagint, chapter 15, verses 1 through 16, and the Messara, the Hebrew version, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And here we have the common good involves all members of society. No one is exempt from cooperating with it. Number six, the lots are reversed. The lots were the way in which the destinies were chosen. We're going to get into that in a moment. In the Masorah, the Hebrew text, chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 12. And I want you to hang on chapter 8 and verse 12, because uh, this is where uh, most scholars today, or really for the last uh, century and a half, believe that the original story of Esther actually ended in the middle of the 8th chapter. The additional materials after that appear to be from another rendering or another story. So I just want you to hang on that. Chapter 8 and verse 12. We have some more references. I'll get into them later. But here we find that no expression of social life can escape the issue of its own common good. And then finally, the Feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M is established with its meaning in chapter 9, verse 20, through chapter 10, and verse 3. Everyone has the right to enjoy conditions of social life that are brought about by the quest for the common good. Then we have the epilogue of the book, or the scroll, which is the interpretation of Mordecai's dream, The common good is realized in the just relationship between the secular state and the church. A purely historical and materialistic vision would end up transforming the common good into a simple socioeconomic well-being without any transcendental goal, without its most intimate reason for existing. All right, let's get into the meat of the scroll, the Megalat Esther. The Compendium of the Social Teaching of the Catholic Church states that the demands of the common good are dependent on the social conditions of each historical period. Now, an examination of a book as ancient as that of Esther will necessarily take this into consideration. What has come to be recognized today as normative in regards to civil rights was essentially unknown. In Esther's time. In the Greek version, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, is described as a Jew dwelling in the city of Susa, a great man serving in the court of the king. He was one of the captives brought from Jerusalem. Now, he has his own particular ethnic and national identity, that of a Jew. His ethnicity, in this context, introduces the principle of the unity, dignity, and equality of all people. Although Mordecai was forcibly relocated to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem rather, he is nevertheless a loyal citizen of the capital city. Indeed, he is a servant of the king with a sterling reputation. As a man and as a citizen, he enjoys the dignity of the human person, which is the foundation of all other principles and content of the church's social doctrine and the doctrine in particular of the common good. And so it is on the premise of this struggle, as well as that of the whole Persian Empire, that we have the introduction of the principle or the idea of the common good in society. Now, Esther is chosen in the place of the queen. Vashti refuses to respond to the king's overture. She's the principal member of the harem, and she is therefore replaced. And a call goes out to the empire, that all the comely young women should be brought in and selected for the uh, harem. Uh, This is the way it was done in Susa. Not in Washington. (laughs) I don't think. Well, maybe. So a choice was to be made for a new queen. And uh, Esther, who is called Hadassah, In Hebrew, Hadassah is chosen and she is given a new name. In the choice of Esther, we'll see the responsibility for attaining the common good belongs to the state. Now, the ancient monarchies, and Persia was certainly not to be accepted, were often capricious, serving their own wants and needs and seriously compromising the common good. And this appears to be the case in the dethronement of Queen Vashti and the choice of Hadassah as her replacement. And still, the selection of a Jewish woman raises the question of the demands of the common good on the state, which according to the compendium of the church, concern above all the commitment to peace, the organization of the state's powers, a sound juridical system the provision of essential services to all, some of which are at the same time human rights, food, housing, work, education, culture, the freedom of communication and expression, and the protection of religious freedom. A sub-theme in Esther and the story of Mordecai and the relationship of the Jewish people to the monarchy of Persia, a sub-theme, a very close idea to the common good in the book of Esther is the idea of religious freedom. Very interesting for such an ancient book to introduce the idea of religious freedom in this very ancient context. Now, the question of the Jews in the empire touched on all of these points that are raised in Catholic social teaching. In their transposition from Israel to Persia and their resulting status, they were effectively denied basic human rights. Now in the third division, and I'm collecting, the Hebrew version follows a different progression than the Greek versions, but I've combined them for you and so that we can follow the development of the story in the Hebrew version Haman schemes against the Jewish people in the Greek versions his schemes are entirely against Mordecai as an individual but in the Hebrew version it is against the Jewish people as a whole and King Ahasuerus decrees their destruction in the Hebrew version this is chapter 3 verses 1 through 15 in the Greek version it is b1 through 7 it's alluded to now taking into consideration the times and the conditions nevertheless the rudimentary aspects of human rights were to be accorded and protected by the empire and we can see this in the tension uh, that exists in the story in fact Ahasuerus has a conflict within himself over this issue of respecting the Jewish people, their culture, and their religion, and at the same time exerting the power of the state to control its citizens. The antihero, Haman, because of his narcissism and ambition and hubris, schemes against Mordecai, the Jewish people, and thereby against the common good of the empire itself. And in doing so, he violates the fundamental precepts that are laid down in the teachings of the church and are composed and cited in the compendium. Let me just read you one paragraph that pertains here. First, The common good presupposes respect for the person as such. In the name of the common good, public authorities are bound to respect the fundamental and inalienable rights of the human person. Society should permit each of its members to fulfill his vocation. In particular, the common good resides in the conditions for the exercise of the natural freedoms indispensable for the development of the human vocation, such as the right to act according to a sound norm of conscience and to safeguard privacy and rightful freedom in all matters of religion. Now, the well-being of the Persian Empire depended on the just treatment of its Jewish residents, So, by indulging Haman, the king threatens the peace of his entire nation. And this becomes a sub-theme throughout the book. The personalities of Mordecai, of Esther, of Haman, and Ahasuerus emphasize the role of each individual in attaining the common good. Not only according to the guidelines of the majority, but also the effective good of all, including the minority. Ahasuerus' edict contradicts these basic principles of human rights and freedom, and thus it threatens to destroy the inner peace of the empire. In the uh, Messara, the Hebrew version, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and in that gem of the Greek version, the Alpha text in C, 1 through 30, Esther and Mordecai appeal to God for justice. In spite of the absence of a reference to God per se, in the Hebrew version, The book of Esther is infused with the providential care of the Almighty. And recourse is clearly made to him, whether it is an oblique reference or whether it is a prayer, as it is in the Greek version. To this, the compendium says, the common good of society is not an end in itself, It has value only in reference to attaining the ultimate ends of the person and the universal common good of the whole creation. God is the ultimate end of his creatures, and for no reason may the common good be deprived of its transcendent dimension. Now this is what I find so intriguing about the Masorah, the traditional Hebrew version of the Magillot Esther, of the scroll of Esther, the story of Esther, because it is very evident to me uh, that the explicit references to God have been deleted from the text, and we have to ask why this would be. Why would a sacred book, which, where's the Megillah? Okay, it's halfway through, right? So now you see how long the Purim service is in the synagogue. In the scroll itself, if we read through it, and you, you in fact may have done this. You may have read the book of Esther and not even been aware that God wasn't mentioned in it. This happens to many people. They read the Bible through in a year or three or maybe they're reading the wisdom books or the writings and you read you know daniel and you read esther judith and a few others and you weren't even aware of the fact god was never explicitly referenced in the book of esther you thought he was and you thought rightly why were the references to god excerpted or why were they excised from the text well This may have been done in later centuries when the Jewish people were under threat because they were monotheists. Or it may have been much later down the line when they were under threat with the um, rising of Islam and the references to God could be used for blasphemy allegations against them. But we we don't know why the references to God were taken from the story in the Hebrew version. But what it left us with was an interesting document which is religious without reference to God. And this seems to have unique application in a society today which finds it very difficult to speak of God in a social context. Uh, In fact, I was doing some postgraduate work and I had a, a professor who described himself as a secular spiritual. Um, in the sense that he believed in transcendence, he believed in mystery, he said, but without reference to a God. So it's interesting that we have this book that evokes in us every recognition of the presence of God, and yet the book itself in the Hebrew version does not mention God. And so it has a special application, I think, to a time in which secularism would excise any reference, explicit references to God while still attempting to maintain religious liberty of some sort. In the Greek version, Mordecai prays, to God the king who rules over all things. And Esther prays, O Lord, do not surrender thy scepter to what has no being. Let me read that again. Esther prays, O Lord, do not surrender thy scepter to what has no being. Now, while somewhat cryptic, it seems to imply that the state without regard to God, cannot make any true claim of authority over the citizens' religious sentiments. Indeed, cannot be trusted to safeguard their most inherent rights. The right to acknowledge God is an essential human right. The Church's social teaching states the Declaration, Dignitatis Humanae, explains in its subtitle that it intends to proclaim the right of the person and of communities to social and civil freedom in religious matters. In order that this freedom, willed by God and inscribed in human nature, may be exercised, no obstacle should be placed in its way, since the truth cannot be imposed except by virtue of its own truth. The dignity of the person and the nature of the quest for God require that all men and women should be free from every constraint in the area of religion. Society and the state must not force a person to act against his conscience or prevent him from acting in conformity with it. This is a principle revealed in the Maggillat Esther. The foundations for this assertion of the fundamental human right of religious freedom is found in its first forms in the text of Esther. For in refusing to bow to Haman, the evil schemer, Mordecai was acting according to his conscience, formed as it was, By Torah, and tradition. Now we move on to the next section of the scroll where divine deliverance is prepared. Esther intercedes for the people with the king. In the Alpha version of the Greek, it's in D, 1 through 16. In the Hebrew version, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And in the Septuagint, chapter 15, verses 1 through 16. The fourth chapter of Esther presents a deeply moving interchange between Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who bitterly lamented and protested Haman's plan to carry out the genocide of the Jews. Ignorant of the vizier's purpose, she at first tries to ameliorate Mordecai's disquiet. When he refused... And she learned the truth. She was confronted with her own responsibility on three levels. As a human being, a member of the Jewish people, and an official of the state. The compendium says this, The common good involves all members of society. No one is exempt from cooperating according to each one's possibilities in attaining and developing it. The common good must be served in its fullness, not according to reductionist visions that are subordinated by certain people to their own advantage. Rather, it is to be based on a logic that leads to the assumption of greater responsibility. The common good corresponds to the highest human instincts. So this is reflected precisely in the appeal Mordecai makes to Esther and to which she affirmatively responds. Then Mordecai, this is uh, the Hebrew version, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Then Mordecai told them to return answer to Esther. Think not that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Civil disobedience in the ancient Middle East. (laughs) That's got to make a baby boomer just break out in hives. Or something. Goosebumps. So the compendium, citing the catechism, the Second Vatican Council, and other essential documents, assigns to political authorities special responsibilities in this regard. As the common good is the reason the political authority exists. For Esther the common good, becomes her raison d'être. Esther's understanding of her duty and obligation in regard to her people, her station, and her nation required an understanding of the principles of subsidiarity and solidarity. The expression of the whole truth about man known by reason and faith. In regard to subsidiarity, Esther acts as a member of her family and of her clan and tribe. Furthermore, as a member of the Jewish people, she is in solidarity with her people as well as her country, since the destruction of the Jews is ultimately the destruction of her adopted nation. So, in these circumstances, the two principles converge in one person, in one character. Esther's action in interceding with the emperor for her people embodies the moral actions necessary to realize the common good. The lots are then reversed. This is in the Masara, the Hebrew version, chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8 and verse 12, which most scholars agree is the end of the original story. It's found in the Alpha version of the Greek in E, 1 through 24. Now, the history of nations demonstrates that when any government or society deliberately deprives any of its citizens of human and civil rights, It plants the seeds of its own destruction. In the case of Esther's Persia, the fate of Haman and his followers becomes that which he had purposed for the Jews. And this reversal reflects the later gospel precept of sowing and reaping and of the use of the sword. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword the compendium comments this way. A society that intends to remain at the service of the human being at every level is a society that has the common good, the good of all people and of the whole person as its primary goal. The human person cannot find fulfillment in himself, that is, apart from the fact that he exists with and for others. This truth does not simply require that he live with others at various levels of social life, but that he seek unceasingly in actual practice and not merely at the level of ideas. The good, that is the meaning and truth found in existing forms of social life. No expression of social life, from the family to intermediate social groups, associations, enterprises of an economic nature, cities, regions, states, up to the community of people and nations can escape the issue of its own common good, in that this is a constitutive element of its significance and the authentic reason for its existence. Now this brings us to the controversial Feast of Purim. You were aware that the Feast of Purim was controversial, weren't you? Now, the Feast of Purim is established after the turning of the tables, and Haman's proposed genocide is reversed. Haman himself is executed in the uh, Greek version alone, in the Hebrew version with his ten sons. Ten, of course, is a, a symbolic number, particularly in rabbinic Judaism, Ten makes the essential congregation and therefore represents the community or the people. Whether or not Haman had ten sons and whether they were hanged with him or not is still debated, but you won't criticize the Jews for just throwing it in there for good measure. (laughs) Haman and Ahasuerus, the emperor, and in the larger sense the Persian nation, failed in their vocation to the common good precisely by following a reductionist vision that was subordinated by certain people to their own advantage. This would be, of course, Haman and his crew. In an attempt to promote himself at the expense of others, Haman was able to dupe the emperor into ordering the destruction of his Jewish citizens. Tragically, this has been a scar on civilization since the expulsion from Eden. And the worst acts of genocide have been committed for the most base and even petty reasons. Purim is a memorial of the victory of the common good by divine intervention, whether we have it obliquely in the Hebrew version or whether we have it explicitly in the Greek version. The common good over xenophobic policies. The compendium elucidates these principles by stating that the common good requires a common effort to obtain for every person and for all peoples the conditions necessary for integral development so that everyone can contribute to making a more humane world. Now in the epilogue of the scroll we have a very contested element of the story and that is Mordecai's dream whether it was a part of the original story or not it has been embraced and becomes a part of the story in the Septuagint Bible the Greek Bible which of course was the Bible of the Jews in the diaspora outside Israel and became the Bible of the Church and the foundation of the Vulgate, the Latin version, which would come later. And in this version, we have Mordecai's dream and its interpretation. That's in the Greek version, F1 through 11. And uh, here we have the common good realized in the just relations between the secular state and the Church. The last half of the 20th century provided a backdrop that significantly developed our concept of Catholic social teaching. And the compendium gives a full treatment to that period, and in particular, the final solution, implemented by Hitler against the Jews in Nazi-occupied Germany, which was an uncanny modern replay of Hammann's plot. In reference to the encyclical of Pius XI, Mit Brunender Sorgi. The compendium says, the Pope spoke directly to priests, religious and lay faithful, giving them encouragement and calling them to resistance until such time that a true peace between church and state would be restored. In 1938, with the spreading of anti-Semitism, Pope Pius XI affirmed in his encyclical, spiritually we are all Semites. In this way, the Pope's appeal to the Church in Nazi-oppressed Europe replayed Mordecai's impassioned entreaty to Esther. The German bishops, with the bishops of Holland and countless righteous Gentiles, Catholic and otherwise, responded many at the peril of their lives, as Esther did in her time, by openly protesting the persecution of the Jews and thereby advocating for their common good. And so... As the Church today faces an enlargement of the circumference of the culture of death, the devaluation and degradation of human life, and the curtailment of religious freedom, there must be yet another intervention as in the days of Esther and of Pope Pius XI. For those who are targets of the reductionist vision of humanity, and a championing of the true human dignity and proclamation of the freedom and redemption wrought by Christ, the gospel of the kingdom present in human history. For in proclaiming the gospel, the church bears witness to man in the name of Christ, to his dignity and his vocation, to the communion of persons. She teaches him the demands of justice and peace in conformity with divine wisdom and so may we find in our day men and women such as Mordecai and Esther for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people thank you
1: Thank you very much, Father Paul, for a very insightful presentation. I encourage you, if you haven't gone back and read the book of Esther, I hope that you're not going to go home and turn on CNN. You're going to open your Bibles and give a good review of it. There he goes again. (laughs) I learned a number of wonderful insights tonight, and I can't wait to go back and review the text myself. Did you know that you were in the Catholic Herald this week, Father Paul?
2: I knew that they had interviewed me.
1: <laughs> yes. It was in the Herald this week, but the Institute got the lead article. Yours had to be. It was buried a couple back.
2: Apologize for that. Of course. Well, <laughs> no, I set it up that way. I wanted a crowd.
1: I'm standing up here looking at his notes, and uh, he's got an, an entire binder here on the biblical and liturgical foundations of the Eucharist. This may lead to another lecture at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Okay.
2: Father Paul, thank you for that. That was an excellent address. In reading the preface to the book of Esther, it says, The book of Esther tells a story. It continues down on the
1: third paragraph. The book is a free composition, not a historical
2: document. Its fictional character can be illustrated, et cetera, et cetera. It almost sounds like it's saying... Once upon a time, could you address that? Uh, Yeah, once again, I personally follow a rule that unless there is incontrovertible evidence to the contrary, that a story told in Scripture is true. Now, with Esther and Mordecai, we do believe that there is a core story, which was true. It was a true story involving true persons, but as many ancient stories, and this one would have been oral for a very long period of time, before it was um, redacted and and formed into its present form, which we, we don't really even have a full sense of what its true form was. As I said, we have three versions of it, so that in and of itself tells us that the story changed in emphasis and focus But I wouldn't go so far as to say that they were fictitious characters. I would say this was a story based on true personalities, something that had at its essence this controversy. Now, it may be that we have the confluence of two stories. Some have pointed to an Esther tradition, which was the story of a Jewish woman in Persia who rose to the station of uh, a member of the royal harem and the story of Mordecai, a Jewish minister in the kingdom, or the empire, who rose to the place of a chief vizier. Both those stories had something in common, and some suggest that what was in common between the two stories was Haman, the evil schemer, who may have been an evildoer on many levels, and when we read about him in the book of Esther, it seems pretty evident that he wouldn't have just oddly and uniquely reacted badly to Mordecai. It was a flaw in his character. He was a malevolent person. And so he may have schemed in several directions. And that's what brought the two stories. That, and we realize this happens today. We, we have coincident stories that have something common between them. And then that brings it into one story, even though it was really two distinct experiences. But this is a very, very ancient book from an ancient society. And so it's not unusual that we would have three distinct versions. They are not in conflict with each other. They tell different aspects of the tale. It does reflect a kind of tale telling from Persia at that time. So it it isn't unique literature in that respect.
0: Yes, I have the uh, Revised Standard Edition, of the Holy Bible, and I don't understand the lettering or the numbering
2: system here. It starts with chapter 11. Yes,
0: and yes. then it goes to one.
2: Yes. Why? Um, got me. Um, <laughs> what uh, each publisher is attempting to deal with the underlying three versions and so they go out to the scholarly world and they try to identify the different sources and this is a controversy in biblical scholarship some will say sources and by sources what they're saying then is that you've got one set of authors over here and they're writing one thing and another set of authors over here and they're writing something else so there are others who attempting to maintain the integrity of the story Uh, We'll say not sources, but traditions. So we have an Esther tradition and a Mordecai tradition, two stories that are combined at some point. So what they try to do is they try to identify these elements, and then they try to put them in a sequence that seems to make some sense. Some of it, it's not possible to do, because you have different, elements of the story and you're, you're trying to sew them together at a certain point. So all they wind up doing is taking material that looks like it relates and putting it somewhere else. Now I do have to say that in spite of my my great endorsement and rah-rah party that I have for the Revised Standard Version, and I still maintain myself that that's the best version to use for serious biblical scholarship in the English language, Nevertheless, the new, revised, New American Old Testament, which has just come out in the last year or two, has done, I think, a very good job of stitching the different traditions or sources, the different versions of Esther together. It's done a good job at it. So if you want to take a look at that, you can see what they've done with it. But each publisher is going to do it differently. It's just what they have to do. Unless we would have three different books of Esther in the Bible. And I do want to mention a book. It's out of print. You cannot get it, and if you want to get it, you're going to have to pay some bucks for it. But it's The Book of Esther by David Klein, C-L-I-N-E, David Klein. He's a reader, I think, at the University of Sheffield. He's a biblical Scholar, He's done a very good work on the alpha text in particular in relation to the others, the Septuagint and the Messara. And uh, he's done an exquisite job in laying out the sequence of the story. So that's another book that's helpful. Yep.
1: And I do have one coming online from Catherine. Can you comment on Esther being a type or shadow of the Blessed Mother? And before you answer that question, I would just point Catherine, those interested in that, to Father Scalia's presentation on Shadows of the Virgin, which we have on our website. But go ahead, Father.
2: Well, I'm not going to attempt to stand up to Father Scalia's standards on that. I'll (laughs) leave, I'll leave him as the typologist of Esther. What I will say is that Esther really strikes a very unique place in spiritual history. Because she is one of those remarkable females in the story of salvation. And it's interesting that the critical role she plays in the salvation of the Jewish people and thereby the salvation of the Persian Empire. See, this is something I was trying to emphasize in my remarks, is that the destruction of the Jewish people would have de facto been the destruction of the empire. So she saves the empire, the universal, if you will, by, what, interceding for the particular. And I think that that's a very important element of the story. And it seems that women do this better in salvation history than men do. Let me just use an example. How about Abraham and the destruction of Sodom? what about for 50? Uh, How about 40? How about 30? Would you do it for 10? (laughs) It's a kind of strange, feeble negotiation. Moses, too, falters in this respect. He doesn't seem to get that the salvation for the whole comes by the intercession for the particular. There's a passionate connection with that. And I think with the intercession of Esther, you have that reflected again And so I think if you see a parallel between Esther and the Blessed Mother, I think it's in the role of her intercession. And we can see that played out. And if we think in terms of seeking the intercessions of the Blessed Mother in our own plights, we can see that parallel. Your thesis made an excellent correlation between Esther and Catholic social doctrine. Is there also a correlation with... Protestant social doctrine or Jewish social doctrine? When we talk about Jewish social doctrine, there is a category of doctrine in Judaism that is based on the Noahide commandments, the seven commandments given to Noah. And this is the basis of what we would see as the idea of the common good, uh, the common good of all people. That's another topic, so to go into it would be to get much too large in an answer like this. There are some elements of Protestant social doctrine. It does not have the same degree of coherence or breadth and depth of Catholic social doctrine because it sort of runs the gamut in the similar way as theology does in Protestantism. But there are some, and one, interestingly enough, is uh, international law which had, again, a kind of reference to theories of the common good that are derived from Scripture. So what we do have in common with the Jewish view, the Protestant view, is, of course, the Scripture. So in that respect, now, you know, I've proposed this. This is my own proposal, because, as I said right at the front, the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, which is the official document that brings all the social teachings of the church together in one place and is replete with scripture passages. There must be 20 pages of scripture references, uh, notes in the back. Um, There's not a single one to Esther. And when I read the compendium, I I did a, a commentary on the compendium for Priests for Life, and when I read the compendium through, it was first published. We got a trial copy of it from Rome before it was published for the church, when I read it, I, I was scratching my head. I was saying, where's, where's Esther? This is, must be a pre-publication version, and they're holding Esther for the last <laughs> to really come out of the gate storming. And maybe there'll be a revised version someday with Esther in it. But Esther, to me, is the paradigm. It, it is the story that brings all this idea, all this social teaching together. And I think the reason why I think this is so important is because it grounds the existential elements of social doctrine in the scripture and in the story of salvation. It isn't some kind of modern concoction of Catholicism responding to post-industrial Marxist uh, ideas of the 20th century. And some people do see it that way. They see it as an accommodation of Catholicism to modern impulses. But if you look at it, the core principles that are elucidated there go all the way back and I see it vividly in Esther. Now, it's certainly other places in scripture all throughout. But boy, if you want to have one story that tells it all, it's Esther. That's, that's why I think it's so important. Thank you very much, Father two. Paul.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay. right.
1: We'll just conclude with uh, one comment by me. And that is that um, I put this, I think, a wonderful flyer. We have some of the best flyers at the Institute of Catholic Culture, don't we? All right. Now, who can tell me where this piece of art is from? I took this picture in Jerusalem. It is depicted in mosaic form. This is to go back to Catherine's comment or question about shadows of the Virgin. The place where the mother of God fell asleep, where she reposed in the Lord. There is a dome within the church just over the location. And on that dome are all of the great women of the Old Testament, including Esther, in mosaic form, who crushed the serpent's power over us. And I took that picture. I was so moved by it. It is a Bible study in itself, this Mosaic Dome. For those that are here tonight, a number of people that are here tonight, we will be there and we will be kneeling there at the location where the Mother of God reposed in the Lord. Bibles open and we will be doing a Bible study on shadows of the Virgin on location. How is that?
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.